you're sitting on my you're sitting on the recorder. Rose, you you're sitting on the recorder. Now you're sitting more on the recorder. There you go. That's better. All right, Rosie, should we go? Good noise. Let's do it. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. You join me out on a walk with my dog friend Rosie, and it's cold. We're out in the East Anglian countryside, early October 2019, but it is not clement. This angry-looking, low-level grey cloud moving swiftly above me, and uh, as you can probably hear, quite a bit of wind and I was going to spend this intro talking at length about my important opinions regarding the impeachment of Donald Trump, whether the aims of the Extinction Rebellion climate change protesters will be achieved and whether the UK will be leaving the European Union with some kind of a deal at the end of this month, but it's too cold. I'm just going to record this intro and then an outro, and I'm going to go back, edit them together, put up the podcast, and then have some tea. Sorry, I know you're disappointed, but um, there are podcasts out there that do deal with that kind of thing, I'm glad to say. But let me tell you about this episode of my podcast, episode 103, which features a rambling conversation. Whoa, it's really windy with writer and radio and podcast host, Emily Dean. Emily is one of Frank Skinner's co-hosts on his Saturday morning Absolute radio show, along with Alan Cochran. And for the last few years, she's also had her own interview podcast called Walking the Dog, in which she accompanies fascinating and brilliant people as they walk their dog friends. Myself and Rosie were guests on the Walking the Dog podcast. In fact, Emily came to visit me here in Norfolk, along with her producer, Charlie, a couple of years ago now, I think it was 2017, yes, to record our conversation on this very bit of track where I'm walking, although it was a nicer day. Oh, it's raining now as well. When we did Emily's Walking the Dog podcast, I think there was a fair bit of dead dad chat And there is a bit more in this one. Spoiler alert. For anyone new to the podcast, my dad died. It's one of the big spoilers in life. Although regular listeners will be only too familiar with that fact already. But this podcast conversation was recorded with Emily once again out here in Norfolk. She came to visit in June of this year, 2019, only 
one of a very select group of podcast guests that has actually come to record out here. Um, But it was very nice to see her. She came this time with her dog friend, Raymond, a Shih Tzu. They drove up from London after Emily had finished the Absolute Radio show one Saturday afternoon. And they spent the evening with us at Castle Buckles after we'd recorded the podcast. Anyway, the spur for my meeting with Emily back in June was the fact that I'd read her book, Everybody Died, So I Got a Dog, which was published earlier this year. And it's filled with many entertaining stories about Emily and her sister Rachel's frequently unconventional childhood with their theatre actor mother and TV documentary maker father. Uh, The second half of the book deals with the sudden death from cancer of Emily's sister, followed not long thereafter by her mother's death and then her dad's death. And Emily writes very movingly and with great humour and candour about the process of grieving and then moving on with her life and the part that Raymond, the Shih Tzu, played in that. But it's not just dead relative chat in this podcast, as much as we all love that. A lot of it was quite stupid, as I recall. Uh, Incidentally, with reference to something we were talking about quite near the beginning of the podcast, I do turn off my devices when asked to do so on planes. So please don't write in. Thanks. I'll be back at the end for a bit more solo chat, including exciting news about next week's podcast guest which I dare say you will be interested to hear especially if you're a comedy fan but right now, here we go mode not that it makes any difference that's one of the myths isn't it that actually it makes a difference oh really does it i not? think you would be worried if it did wouldn't you to the what actual if... avionics of the thing i use the word avionics okay so i would say yes if one iphone was able to bring down a plane that would be tremendously concerning wouldn't it? Yeah. I appreciate that it's the volume of signals coming from all the devices of all the passengers on the plane, like whatever. So they, ha- they have to make one rule. Yeah, because it but wouldn't be one Domino's text that would bring it down. Yeah. I think it's a bit like, uh, listen, this is all total speculation based on no evidence whatsoever. But in my mind, it's bracketed with the whole thing of not being able to use your phone at the petrol station because it might <laughs> explode the pumps which do you is, not believe that? that's bullshit yeah <laughs> bullshit i call bullshit <laughs> right <laughs> that's why when i'm flying on a plane i refuse to turn off my devices even when the steward people get very angry do you know i make a point of being really reasonable on planes sure of course because I, well no i do it because my sister always had this thing was that you can never argue at christmas 
because it's a bit Liam and Noel Gallagher. Like it's a bit <laughs> tacky to fall out at Christmas. But I don't care how angry you are with me, make it Boxing Day. But you can't not be talking on Christmas Day. That's a good... It's true that it's a good rule. Definitely. And um, I feel the same as having an argument or losing your temper on a plane is just the height of naffness, isn't it? I'm glad you didn't use the phrase what basic you... bitch. No, I don't like that. I think that's a phrase that's going to be cancelled, to use another oh, phrase been... <laughs> to jure. Has it been cancelled? I, I still hear people using it. Oh, look at Ray. Do you think I should put him on the floor, Ed? No. Do you think he's happy up there? He can go where he wants. Ray's looking pretty happy, curled up. Tell us about Ray while I Google, is using your mobile phone at a petrol station really dangerous? <laughs> it's like the worst date I've ever been on. <laughs> I'm sat here and he's Googling. First date. Not only is he Googling, but he's Googling a sort of pyromaniac weirdo thing as well. Yeah, that would be sexy though, wouldn't it? If your date said, uh, after ordering the drinks, um, I am just going to look down and Google this. So don't think I'm ignoring you. But while I'm doing it, why don't you just tell me about your dog? Okay. Oh, I would hate that. I don't like people getting out their phone in, in that situation. But I also wanted to say something to you, oh. which is that... What, why did you do that? That sounds like you're going to tell me off for something. Do I make you think that you're going to be told off? I don't know. I deserve to be told off. I'm in a constant state of waiting for someone to tell me that off. That was an interesting reaction, though. <laughs> I said, oh, let me tell you something. You went, oh. Here we go. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, I'll tell you what I wanted to tell you. Yeah. I, I'm in a room, and I love this room, because it's got books here, and it's got stuff of your dad's here. Yes. And I really love that. Well, I'll set the scene yeah. for the listeners. So we're sat in the flat, a converted pig shed across the way from our house in Norfolk. And this is where my dad came to live. You know, he didn't need constant care. It was just a question of managing his last months uh, when he got cancer. So, yeah, I thought, yeah, move him in. That'll be great. Yeah. And we'll bond. And we'll say all the things that we never said. When, you know, we were younger. In the living years. Right. Uh, anyway, of course, none of that happened. But we're surrounded by a lot of his stuff. A lot of the paintings that used to be on the walls of the house where I grew up. And then lots of his books, mm. which are vaguely organized into categories. Have Over you read them the, all? No way. On the left shelf here is a lot of biographies. I can see a Max Hastings. That's exactly what I would have expected. Sure. Two copies of the Patrick Lee Firmer biography. Because your dad was a travel writer. He was, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in the days when travel writing was a sort of intellectual thing in a way, you know, like you would write travel essays, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. It used to be assumed that most of the people reading the article were not going to be able to go to the places you were writing about yeah either they couldn't afford to or it just wasn't yeah it was just beyond their means one way or another but they were still interested in reading about the rest yeah. of the world so that's what travel writing was a lot and then when cheap air travel became a thing in the 80s i suppose mm. and some of these destinations became more affordable and realistically reachable for for readers then the style of travel writing changed and was forced to change and my dad always railed against that did he yeah because he didn't want it to be just like you know i've got a nice pool and the buffet is mm. blah 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 he didn't want just practical tips he wanted to evoke an experience yeah, and a sense of place the way that his heroes had done, the way that Patrick Lee Firma did. You see, that's interesting. That's something we have in common because my dad 
made documentaries. Right. And I think that... Your dad was the first man on British colour TV. I know, he was. I love it. But that was sort of by default. That worked out quite strangely because they were doing tests back in those days. It was on BBC Two. And I think it was sort of disastrous and chaotic. I mean, not right now. You'd think there'd be some huge fanfare, whereas it was... I think there was a disaster one night. They had to do it with a candle. There was a power cut. But, yeah, it was weird. It wasn't that big a deal. And I don't think... When people ask me and they're quite shocked, they're like, God, that feels like quite a big thing. When was that? That would have been late 60s. And at the time I was quite... I used to say he worked for the BBC and I would sometimes lie and say he did like Top of the Pops. Sure. actually what he did was like, he would do documentaries about the elderly and it wasn't very glamorous. But my dad would always say about journalism, he would get very frustrated and he would say it was sensationalist. He said, you have a responsibility to describe the entire orchard. You can't just pick out the exotic fruit. I'd like that. Hmm. Some of the things that my dad says, at the time I would find them a bit pretentious and I was sort of estranged from him for a long time and I used to sort of laugh at him and now I really value them. I don't know if you feel that about your dad. I think you had a better relationship with your dad. It was more consistent. But I do, I look around this room, I suppose, and I see these books and I I just get this feeling of your dad being here and living a really, like an educated life well spent. Well, he was from, I think, more humble background than my mum. And yeah. so his parents were servants, kind of Downton Abbey style. Oh, really? So he grew up with that quite conservative aesthetic of wanting to better himself and yeah. be accepted by the establishment, really. Mm. So he was a, a big self-improvement guy and mm. wanted to emulate the, the, the kind of life and the pursuits of the people that he respected from that establishment world. You know what I mean? And what effect do you think... Because I had that with my mum, I think, a bit. Yeah. I mean, her childhood was absurd. I mean, it was so Dickensian, and it was sort of... We would hear stories... She grew up in Wales, and we would occasionally meet relatives, but she felt shame, I think, over these people, who are, my sister and I thought were brilliant characters. They'd be like this bloke, and say... And, he was a miner and then he was made redundant from the mines at 11, I think. Oh, what? <laughs> redundant. Wow, that is old at school. At 11. Yeah. And you'd hear things like, oh, we killed someone and there was a boxer and there was someone who was shot. Colourful characters. They were colourful characters, exactly. Yeah. They were League of, it was League of Gentlemen, essentially, yeah, in her man. background. But I think, you know, there are some people that take those characters and think, oh, this is exciting, would slightly trade off it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether your dad was like that, but my mum kept all that very hidden. I think that was the difference between then and now, that mm. generation and this. I think now you would be desperate to uh, flash your working class credentials in a way. Yeah. I don't know. But my dad was embarrassed by it, yes. Wouldn't, was he? Didn't want to talk about what his parents did. What effect... Um, my mum too. So what effect do you think that's had on us? Well, I just... And do you think it's had an effect on us? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's... Because he, he was very snobby, my pa. It was funny most of the time. And he was basically a nice guy. Like, he wouldn't be horrible to anyone on a one-to-one basis at all, unless their hair Oral, was very long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless they lived in a bad postcode or exactly. they held knife-like pen. He or... certainly found it very difficult to take seriously anyone that didn't have the right accent, you know. Really? And he didn't like it when he was constantly correcting us if we said something like, can we go now? He would get, can we go now? Not, can we go now? He would do this voice. My mother did exactly the same ad. Yeah. So she would say, 
sorry, I can't get it. What, I've got to get it? Do you mean I've got to get yes, it? Yes, 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 yes. Got to get it. Would you say that to your kids, though? Would you ever correct their speech? Uh, <laughs> Would you ever say, don't say... I wouldn't... I'd say, don't say basic bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I have to really stop myself from constantly going on about the question at the end of the sentence. And sometimes when they came back from school and they'd be saying things like, really? I'd be like, oh, don't start using really. Come on, like, go for something else. But then I caught myself doing it. And I really do try not to do it because I, I, I don't like people. Because then you, you make them self-conscious, right? You speak how you want. Who cares, really? If you make yourself I notice people of our age, of our generation doing it, and I do slightly judge them. Also, this is... You know, clearly, I've got loads of annoying little habits and speech patterns and things that I've picked up. All I, I absorb everything. Yeah. So it would be entirely hypocritical, but it's hard to stop yourself sometimes. I know. Although your partner, who I adore, um, she said totes earlier. She... And I thought we let it slide in a tolerant way because I think she meant it in the right way. Well, I think it was one of those, I hope. <laughs> I have to speak to my wife later on about it. Um, I think she was... She was being uh, ironic. Sometimes that's the thing, but, but yeah. that's that's the way you, these things get well, in themselves you under time. your skin. You start out ironically <laughs> saying AC Spacey, and then a couple of weeks later, you're just a guy that says AC Spacey. <laughs> that's what happened to me. I've said things on the radio show that I do with Frank Skinner, and occasionally people will say, I'll say, well, he was wearing leisure wear, and someone will... We'll text in and say, please, this woman's speech is appalling. It's leisure wear. It's uh-huh. not pronounced leisure. So I sort of think, yeah, but maybe I'm that person. I've still said it. Like someone once said to me, oh, and this was a long time ago because my sister was alive, but he said, oh, your sister's really zanny. Ah. <laughs> and he was a good looking bloke, but I thought I will never sleep with you. Could you? Zanny. But someone who said Zanny, and actually I didn't correct him because I I don't know, he's a bit pleased with himself and good looking. And I know that's awful, but I thought that's the tax you're going to pay <laughs> for a bit longer. And that's just the way it goes, Zanny. mate. Have you had it on your podcast? Have you had a guest mispronouncing something and then thought, I better take that out because that's... No, because usually I will say, I would normally pronounce that blah, blah. Oh, you see, I wouldn't even go that far. Would you not? No. Too aggressive. Yeah. Like you, you, you feel like you're showing them up, embarrassing yeah, them. I, I, no, I, I would feel they wouldn't like me. But I think they'd go home and say to their partner, "I can't believe she corrected my speech." Yeah, but you and I, we're very needy people. We're we are, easily, aren't we? we're easily crushed. <laughs> we aren't. Why are we needy? Oh, I know why I'm needy now because I've done. A we'll lot get of on work. to. We'll get on to that. I look forward to that. This is a great day. You've been Googling. <laughs> can okay. you use petrol yeah. stations at mobile phones? Well, thanks for that segue. Is it really dangerous to use a mobile phone at a petrol station? So is this an urban myth? There is no potential threat. All scientific testing has established no dangerous link between mobile phones and fuel vapours. This is the top... All I'm doing is reading out the top hit (laughs) (laughs) and treating it as if it is absolute solid fact. People do that with Googling. There's one person assigned in the group to be the Googler. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then they read it out and we just accept it. Yeah. I mean, this looks solid. There's a picture of a woman <laughs> with solid. giant breasts. 
and a fellow holding a big roll of stomach fat uh, on the sidebar. And um, it all looks good. No, that's not okay, true. Okay, so it's fine to use a mobile This is phone, a website it, called... Petrol fork or... Scientific Scribbles from the University of Melbourne. All right? Okay. I don't think we're going to second guess the University of Melbourne. No. Fact or fiction? Can your mobile <laughs> blow up a petrol station? This is what they taught. I'm just trying to evoke a realistic... This is module one this yeah. season. Yeah. Module one. In every petty station... <laughs> is that what? In every um, peto... Yeah, <laughs> This claim is total fiction. This rumour has been floating around since 1999. I'm going to carry on doing this offensive I'm quite accent. invested in this character of yours yes. who's at Melbourne University. However, there's no evidence whatsoever and they have split up what, so and ever <laughs> to make the point more... That's one word, isn't it? Oh, whatsoever? Of course it is, yeah. No, not in the University of Melbourne. <laughs> This is sounding very patronising and racist, and I apologise. Okay. This myth was effectively debunked in an episode of Mythbusters back in tw- oh, well, 2003. Well, if uh, the authority is Mythbusters, yeah. <laughs> is that what happened in Zoolander? No, the car exploded, but not as a result of the mobile phone call. Emily can't actually see the website, but the bit I'm looking at right now says, we've all learned from the fatal scene in the movie Zoolander <laughs> where, the, where the whole petrol station explodes from lighting a cigarette. Whilst I do admit in this situation not only have the characters of the movie been recklessly squirting each other with petrol, it is also a movie. Smoking is still a very dangerous hazard. If Derek Zoolander knew this, then you should too. Did love, you work on this? I love that those characters are being described as reckless yeah. in their behaviour. Yes. Yes, please. Yep. Yes. Ah, oh, look at this. Look at Ray. Well, we haven't introduced Ray yet. Do you want to introduce him? Emily is here with... Her best dog friend, mm. Ray. Does Ray have a surname? Yeah, Dean. Right, he's taking he's, your surname. He's taken my name because yeah. I'm modern like that and I pay the bills. Sure, sure. Ray Dean is a beautiful, small Ewok. He does look like something out I mean, of George looks, Lucas's lab, doesn't he? Looks he looks exactly like an Ewok, but he's tiny and sweet. And uh, it looks as if... He's mainly hair, so that if he got wet, he would be like a... A little rat. He's a a, little, I would say a large rat. A little rodenty. Yeah. But, but a, be- was, a beautiful... No, I'm He's not... got such a nice temperament, though. And mm. when I arrived, I was a bit worried, because I arrived and Rosie Yordog, who I've met before and I love, mm. she was really not very impressed by Ray. Ray's a real people dog. He'll just lie here. He lies out. Well, Rosie's not used to seeing other people because, you know, she doesn't see anyone other than me and the children and... Mm -mm. Um, (laughs) But you have friends coming around here. You're making it sound like you're a bit... Not very often. Do you not? No. Do you not have people staying? I mean, yeah, but we mainly lost all our friends. It's very easy to lose friends these days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they die. Yeah, you vote the wrong way. (laughs) You say the wrong thing and then you get cancelled. (laughs) <laughs> I know it is harder to be friends don't you think have you fallen out with anyone I, maybe we shouldn't go down this route because this is a toxic no uh, we won't alleyway. mention names or anything yeah I, well I tell you what I don't know about fallen out with but I think 
what I've discovered is that I possibly had friendships that were in my life as a result of me not having boundaries. When you say that, what do you mean? What I mean... Like in your specific case. Well, so what I was always guilty of, I think, and I probably am still to some degree. Guilty. It is. (laughs) Shame. But you, I think you have to do that to slightly dismantle it because I think you're a bit frightened of sure. therapy. We'll talk about All that. All right, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get on to that. Um, but I think my particular issue mm-hmm. was never complaining and being likeable all the time. So being the perfect friend, being the perfect person. Yeah, I'll do that. Oh, I'll fly to Australia and pay for it myself. This never actually happened, which is why I'm thinking of something that never actually mm-hmm. happened because I don't want to name anyone. But... Things I didn't want to do, saying I liked films because someone else liked them. Right. Some things were more extreme than others, but... Which film did you pretend you liked that you didn't actually like? Oh, so many films. The Colour Purple? Because... (laughs) (laughs) You got to pretend you like that. (laughs) Dude, where's my car? I'm sure I did. Now, what did I pretend I liked? I'm thinking... I think anything cool for a long time. Cool music I'd pretend to like. Oh, really? So it started when I was young with Killing Joke. Really? Yeah. Where was the pressure coming from to like Killing Joke? Well, I grew up in North London and there were this sort of... When I grew up in the 80s, there was this sort of... Yeah, it was Spear of Destiny and Killing Joke, those Mm. sort of bands. Yeah, yeah. Because they weren't clean cut and there was something a bit grungy about them. A love like blood, a love like blood. That was good, though. I find that quite triggering. You mentioned that. Really? <laughs> but no, I would. And I, I remember going to a club that everyone went to called the Opera House. Yeah. And there was that vogue for... I probably wanted to listen to Bross. Right, okay. And I was too ashamed. What were so, you wearing? Well, at the time, I never got the fashion quite right because I would go quite smart. And I remember a boy turning around to me at this cool club and he said, you look so wrong here. He said something like I was classy. He said, you're a bit too classy for a place like this. But he didn't mean it nicely. It was an insult. And I've relived that. Maybe, Emily, you process this <laughs> as an insult. But actually, this guy, he was just thinking you're a classy, classy woman. And don't forget as well, he's probably surrounded by all the other Killing Joke and the Spear of Destiny fans. They probably look quite sad. I'm a bit confused by this character. I don't know what he it is. Because he sounds borderline creepy as well. He's a therapist, qualified <laughs> therapist. What are you talking about? I spent 40 years at the Institute of Vienna. No, I don't know. So that was my particular issue, yeah. I think, was always wanting to be like. But what can happen with that is that you're not having authentic dynamics with people ever. Yeah. Because you're never saying you're unhappy. And I try... It's really hard. Uh, I found it really, I've struggled. It's very extreme. It's an extreme makeover, I guess, emotionally. That's because taken place since? Since my family died. Right. And Sorry, I'm not laughing at your family no, dying, but you know, it is always so. Can we just say you're yeah. allowed to, to laugh? Well, there's humour in the title of your book, you know. <laughs> oh, did you find it funny? Everyone the, the died, title. so I got a dog. I'm, I'm glad, because the majority of people do find it funny, the title, but I worry that some people... And there's only a handful of people that have sort of recoiled a bit. I mean, I guess my dad didn't find death funny. Your I mean, dad no, didn't. no one finds actually dying funny, I don't think. 
but my dad certainly disapproved of irreverence around the subject of death. Did he? Yeah. What sort of thing? So if he saw something on TV, like let's say Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of his favourites. <laughs> would he have not approved of that, for example? No, or... he would have been scandalised. And, and if anyone hasn't seen it, well... I mean, that's the reason that I personally didn't see it as well, because I would have, <laughs> I would agree with him about Weekend at Did Bernie's. Did you lie about having seen it and liking it? <laughs> I could never understand, like, why the fuck would you want to watch that? I'll tell you what I lied about. Yeah. Seeing and liking the Blues Brothers. Oh, okay. I didn't understand it. It's a weird film. It is a weird film. I and mean, I, I didn't really watch most of it and I would quote it. Yeah. Um, and really I would like films that are a bit more Disney. I would like Trading Places. Yeah. I know it's, it's very problematic for it's a better film. millennials now. They won't watch it. They're very upset by because it. Because it is... I mean, there's some pretty sexist stuff towards the end. I'm Inga. There's racism, I think they think. I think that there's all sorts of things about it. the whole premise of it being offensive. The premise? Because yeah. they're turning around the life of Eddie Murphy, aren't they? Oh, I so, see. So it's the idea that you can turn around... That they've sort of right. said his life was imperfect because he was living not a, the lifestyle of someone who was white and had privilege. Yeah, but I would say in John Landis's defence that that's entirely what it was about. It was a skewering to a very large degree of that world of entitlement mm. and white privilege and power and the arrogance that it breeds and the prejudice that it breeds. It was it was very much about that. And Eddie Murphy was so overwhelmingly, dazzlingly charismatic mm. and dominated it to such a degree that it, to me, it cancelled all those things out. Like he sort of just blew the, everything apart. He was the cleverest guy. He was the funniest mm. guy. He was the... He had all the best lines. Yeah. But then I don't... I know what you mean, though. No, yeah, but that's I don't interesting. Think that, I, have... I obviously didn't think that then because... It wasn't in my head to, mm. to, to understand know, or realise that then. But it's only yeah. when I see it, watch it with my godkids, for example. It's and I'd said, hey, you're going to love this movie. Isn't it great? And I sat down to experience it with them. Yeah. And it was a bit like the audience and the producers. You know, the mouths are on the floor. Oh, really? Well, not. I mean, they appreciated the funny lines in it. and anyway, But they were, they were just, and I think there's a bit... Is there a you, you wouldn't make it strange now. bit with a gorilla? At the, oh, yeah, no, it goes totally off the rails. Towards the, in the, the <laughs> I last... mean, that's where I draw the line. Yeah, is the... no, there's some really weird <laughs> stuff. Senator Al Franken is in Trading Places, and he is in that scene. He's one of the two baggage handlers in really? that scene, yeah. Listen, I actually love that film, but... I watched it not that long ago, and I made a note mm. and said, why hasn't this been remade? It mm. is sort of beat for beat the perfect film it's beautifully put together mm. every scene is just like a well-oiled wine opener yes <laughs> no no but also it's the idea and the cast holy the Duke shit brothers though jamie lee curtis is and they're all on top of their game you know mm. she's brilliant dan Aykroyd's brilliant denim elliott who was just nailed at every time everything he was in in around that time but at the the central performance, that Eddie Murphy performance, is, yeah, it's up there. I I always think of Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids. It's yes, like yeah. note perfect, amazing. But not only note perfect, but just something completely 
inspired and otherworldly mm, mm. and just a, a that's fascinating glorious. isn't it that you're right that to me do you think that's his best ever performance comedically well what's the uh beverly hills cop as well he is very yes. very good in but i think trading places is a better film probably overall it's got funnier bits but beverly hills cop but i didn't know again i remember my dad saying and he was sort of in and out of our lives, which was interesting because he'd come back in with an opinion on stuff. And that's hard because I would think, well, you've relinquished your right to comment actually on this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always tough when a dad's absent, but or is erratic, you know. So one of the periods when he'd come back briefly after being away, Rachel and I discovered Raw, which was... The Eddie that, Murphy stand-up yeah, film. Yeah, which if anyone doesn't know, and for younger people, um, everyone's younger than us, but it was kind of... I think it was weird for me because I'd got to like him through Treading Places and through John Landis films, essentially. Although Beverly Hills Cop, that wasn't John Landis, was it? Who was that? No, that's Martin Brest. Yeah. Um, there was something slightly sort of cosy and photoshopped, I guess, about him. And I think I felt it was difficult being confronted with him when he was doing Raw. Raw Eddie. In that red leather... That was delirious. No, delirious, I'm sorry. Mm. But he had, that was his thing as well, wasn't it? It was a slightly sort of leather clothes and he was, and his comedy was, I think I was shocked when I saw his comedy because we la- we were laughing and it was hilarious. But I remember my dad saying, he was very liberal, despite the generation he was from. And he said, I think this is awful, mm-hmm. what he's saying mm-hmm. about, Gay people. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, gay, but, the but gay people stuff especially. my dad was specific because yeah, we were in the theatre yeah. and stuff and my dad was very upset by that. Mm. And we did, We, my sister and I sort of said, oh, he's so square, he's so cool. He was right though. Of course he was right. But don't you feel, it's tricky this area because I do believe that those negative portrayals of people do have an influence and I think that they're discouraged for very good reason. But at the same time, you I remember watching at the time and thinking, well, obviously that's bullshit. Obviously that gay stuff is beyond the pale. And I didn't mm. feel as if he was giving me license to go out and say that stuff because even then you knew that it was wrong. You knew. Well, I knew. Yeah. You're able to say, because you were brought up with a lovely dad who I met and a lovely mother and, and this nice... And, but... I suppose if you hear that and you haven't had people around you with gay friends, Mm -hmm. that's what worries me about the Eddie Murphy stuff, you know, because it's the same rule for racism. I suppose it's the same rule for everything. Mm. No, I agree. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that it would be great to uh, (laughs) get a wider audience for some of those jokes from delirious, you know, as I say, at the time, it was beyond the pale. Yeah. And it was like, what the fuck? And yeah. the AIDS stuff. And, oh, it was awful, awful. But it was just the way he spoke. It was the way he delivered everything. The energy was just magnetic, you know. And it was nicely, I suppose you could say, sort of sanitized or channeled, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. in, in some of those movies, you know. And I think that's the best of him. Yeah. I just find someone like him fascinating because I suppose he would be doing very different material if he was starting out now because people do people do more confessional stuff or people will sort of allude to their feelings, particularly male comedians, much more than they used to. Of course. That's a total performance. The 
the red jacket, the, you know, I'm in control. It's quite, I hate to use the word, the phrase, but it's, it's toxic masculinity in a way. That whole performance was that. It was kind of penis comedy, you mm-hmm. know, it was like, look at me. And I wonder if he would be doing that stuff now. Probably not. It'd be toned down a lot. <laughs> it was always like, he comes out in a kind of crazy superhero suit. Yes. With, with weird little black loafers on. <laughs> Do you remember that? I suppose that was a kind of Michael Jackson thing as well, just to move on to another yeah. savoury topic. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> savoury topic. What if I be moving so slow? Uh, it's taking ages for pages to load. Oh, it was like this when the engineer came. He said it was fake, but now it's the same. I'm taking a photo with my tea to put on my Instagram. Some people like to see the tea of another man. People be tripping on tea, pick it. Yorkshire brewing a nice picket. But I can't upload. Mm, Cause my Wi-Fi's too slow. What's your worst um, gif, by the way? Gif? I don't like Drake standing up clapping. <laughs> I don't know what I thought, but I just think that's very first thought. When someone posts that gif, I thought, could you not be bothered to go to the second deck of gifs? Or Meryl Streep pointing. Do you know the Meryl Streep one? No. I'm blowing my spend... voice. My voice has got a rising inflection now. Yeah. But you, it's because I'm talking about gifs and I'm trying to sound young. Meryl Streep, when there was the equal pay Oscars or Golden Globes, and she stands up and does a You Go Girl. Okay. I just think... What do you think of gifts? I think they're fine. Sometimes I think people are trying a little too hard to um, make themselves look groovy by using gifts that feature people that are in no way... Like they are, do you know what I mean? I think if you're going to use a GIF, if I'm going to use a GIF, for example, I'll try and find a <laughs> schlubby 50-year-old white guy with a beard, and that'll be the GIF. But then a lot of people just uh, sort of go, oh, look, this is how I express myself as someone at 30 years younger who's really glamorous and <laughs> of a totally different race. Instead of Ariana Grande shrugging yeah. or something. I like that you've given me a 90s mug, one of those oversized mugs. It's like a soup bowl. Well, what I like about it is that I, I just, met you in the 90s. Yeah. Well, let's say how we know each other. You, yeah, you, how we met. Yeah, because you were talking about, you were alluding to us being 90s pals. When we say 90s pals, it makes it sound like we took drugs or something together, and that was not the nature of our friendship. I met you because my childhood best friend is Jane Goldman. And how did you meet Jane and her husband, Jonathan? Uh, we did... An interview after, the, I think, the second series of The Adam and Joe Show, which is a TV show I used to do with Joe Cornish on uh, Channel 4 in the UK yeah. in the late 90s. <laughs> and um, we were invited to do an interview for an in-flight program that Jonathan was hosting. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. Were for, you very excited when you got invited? So excited. And he, we did the interview at his house in Hampstead. And maybe it wasn't that occasion, but very shortly afterwards, we went round there and Jonathan had got a sushi conveyor belt 
in the living room that really? that the staff of Yo Sushi had brought round, and one of the chefs from Yo Sushi was there, and it was just at the dawn of sushi becoming a thing that everyone was into. Brilliant, and also very peak nineties as well. Yeah, I love that. I just remember thinking, "Whoa, this is next level." Come on, I didn't think in my mind next level because that phrase wasn't <laughs> in my lexicon then. Excuse me, I'm just going to belch. Okay, I'll feel. Would you like a loud belch or a quiet one? <laughs> I'd, I'd prefer you didn't do it at all. But... <laughs> okay. I apologise. That sounded like the kind of belcher someone was belching in the archers. And they had to belch <laughs> theatrically. <laughs> when I do the show with Frank Skinner, I, he'll sometimes, if he's eating crisps sometimes, he'll eat crisps in the middle of the link and then we'll just go like that. He'll just wave at me. So, yeah. How long have you been I, doing I, that I show? I kicked into Pavlovian mode. I started doing it, Frank asked me to do it, because we were mates, you know. Yeah. Started doing it 10 years ago. We were talking about how we met, and around that time, I was working in journalism and then fashion journalism I went into, and I'd been a child actor, so I'd right. been... So I'd sort of grown up, because my mother was an actor, but not anyone you particularly know. She was more theatre and rep, and occasionally would pop up on things, but... I worked quite a lot when I was a kid. I went to a school called Anna Scherz. Mm, yeah, famous uh, you know, drama yeah. school, yeah. And my sister and I, my dad did a documentary about Anna Scherz. And my sister and I, at that time, it was kind of local kids from Islington. And they're all in, it was just prior to EastEnders, so a lot of them were in Grange Hill. Who did you know from Grange Hill? I knew them all. I knew them all. Um, Roland? Mark Burdis, who played Stu Pot. Did you know Roland? Lee McDonald. Did you know Roland? I did meet him a few times, but it was a bit odd because my sister and I, we never had money. We, I suppose you would call it bohemian Mm -hmm. intelligentsia, whatever you want to call it. We had books. We spent our money, I always say, on sort of black cabs, but we didn't, that's where all our money was. Oh, so you had enough money for black cabs. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Hmm, okay. Um... But yeah, we didn't. We wouldn't pay the gas bill. Yeah. But we had some weird first edition of some Isaiah Berlin book or something. But yeah, so so it was almost like a social experiment. Us going to this drama school. Yeah. It was like it will be good for you, and you'll be, learn confidence, which is actually true. But I think my sister and I, I remember doing first thing I did. I got a part in. Dare the Triffids, and I got a part in. Did you? I watched that. Yeah, I was in Dare the Triffids. Good one. Were you a Triffid? No. You were absolutely triffid. I'm so sorry. But it was good, that adaptation. I'm still reeling. That's of course awful. you are. I know. It's uh, rubbish. It was good, but I didn't know it at the time. It freaked the and shit out of me, that show. It was... I didn't know... Because it was a choice between that and a show called Fanny by Gaslight. That's my favourite website. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, that's not cool. You went to very sort of Victorian porn or something. I mean... It's funny by Gaslight. Yeah, yeah. It's called. I don't know much about it. It's an extraordinary title. It was a toss- I don't approve of gaslighting, but I'm fine with... What? Well, not, not, I don't approve of it in that context. Not no. so near. No, that's dangerous. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was, a, it was a toss-up between Fanny by Gaslight... You bet. ...and Bear the Triffids. Yeah. And uh, Dev, the Triffids... I think you chose the right one. ...obviously beat off Fanny by Gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely doing this on purpose okay. now, you know. Yeah. 
But yeah, so I decided to do that. But I'd also, in order to prepare for Dare the Triffids, they, because it was quite a big, well, it wasn't that big a part, but it was, you know, a significant part. Was it? You weren't just an extra or something? No. No, I wasn't allowed to do extra work. I had an equity card. How dare you? Oh, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Wow, that's cool. Yeah, because in your book, Mm. and apologies if I'm fast forwarding. No, please do. Fast forward. But in your book, you talk about the fact that it turns out you auditioned for... You tell me the story about the French lieutenant's... French lieutenant's woman. Woman. Yes. With Meryl Streep. Yeah. And Jeremy Irons. So did you say lieutenant or lieutenant? Lieutenant. Lieutenant, sorry. I think lieutenant is... It's a different thing. British. Oh, is it? Is it? No. No, lieutenant is the British pronunciation, okay. is it? And lieutenant is American. Is it schedule or schedule? That, <laughs> schedule. Okay. Anyway, you know what we're doing? Being tits. Sounding snobby. Yeah. And... Elitist. Yeah, we really are. Yeah, well, we're terrible people. Well, it's not that we're terrible people, but I think we did get this sense of... We, we, you absorb this stuff. Apparently yeah. Philip Larkin said some stuff about it. I'm not sure. He's cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. I think he is cancelled, isn't he? Of course. He was cancelled ages ago. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> I, had, I had an audition for the French lieutenant's woman. Yeah. And my mother... Who was an actress, and she acted occasionally. She was in a show called The Likely Lads, briefly, which was right because my parents got introduced. My dad was a sort of TV presenter at the time, doing this art show. My mum was an actor, and she'd not long come out of Rada. And they were introduced. My mum used to share a flat with some comedy writers called Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clement. Holy shit! Yeah, so they introduced my my mum. Said I'd really like to meet someone. Who, by the way, podcasts tell them what they wrote. I mean, they're sort of legendary. Well, they wrote The Likely Lads. And mm. Alfida's own pet. Yes, they did. I used yes. to love that show. Did you? And they wrote Lovejoy. <laughs> that was, pro- they were probably cool. That makes me think, when I realised my mum shared a flat with them, I think she was probably in the epicentre, wasn't she, of 60s London, would yeah, you say? Yeah, man. You know, sort of living with them off the King's Road. But having said that, um, that's living all right as being cancelled as a song. Why? What were the lyrics there? Working what all day lyrics? for a packet of pay, that's living all right. That's, that's living, living all right. Then you get them. No. In, then you yeah. go then to. Then a night with the boys. We're in a pub full of noise, that's living all right. That's living all right. Working all day for a packet of pay. So you can send a little back to the wife. Then you kiss the dames, but you don't, don't know their, their names. names. That's living all right. I like right. that you went for no and I went for ask. So you're, I'm suggesting there was malevolent intent that you didn't ask. Whereas you was like, they don't know their names. So it's okay. I'm saying you don't even bother to ask their names. Um, but basically, that song is very difficult. No, that's the realities <laughs> of um, going and working abroad. Because uh, job opportunities in Thatcher's Britain are severely limited. So you go over to Germany, pick up a bit of work. And, and lie on you, the town spreading it around. And then you have to kiss Tell some them girls a lie who with a glint in their eye. Yes. I don't like the glint in the eye. It was cheeky. It was just a bit of fun. Everyone was fine with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so your mum was living with Clement and Lafrenet. My mum was living with Clement and Lafrenet. Introduced... To my dad, and she thought, I like him. But my dad was a bit of a... He was a bit Simon Templar, the saint. Mm -hmm. A lot of old references for this podcast. I'm sorry, but it's good for you to Google sometimes and find out old things. He wore a white suit. 
Yeah, my dad was that, that sort of guy, that 60s guy with a the smoothie. cigarette. Yeah, it was a smoothie. Mm. And my mum really fell for him, but... Would you like an after eight? <laughs> I think he he was a bit toast of London, I think, my yeah, dad. Yeah, okay. Bezique or Mirage? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That kind of thing. <laughs> oh, dear. No, I get it. You get it. Yeah. So, so I think my mum would have been very pleased with that match. Anyway, she was an actor, but I think her acting career had never really taken off. And when Rachel and I went to drama school... That's your sister. Yes, sorry, that's my sister. I think it was a fun thing to do. I think my parents would often get us to do things that were sort of a bit entertaining or... They felt almost like dinner party anecdotes, you know. The girls are at drama school. Mm -hmm. But I think it might have got tough for her in retrospect when, by the time I was doing Dare the Triffids, I guess I'd been working quite consistently. And my mum, I was offered Swallows and Amazons, which was a big drama that they were doing, one of the main characters in it. Yeah. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but I also auditioned for French Lieutenant's Woman and my mum said, oh, you didn't get the part. And I remember really crying and I said... And that was for a big part, right? Yeah, it was Meryl Streep's daughter. Right. And I said, but I worked, I tried really hard. I thought I got that. I tried so hard. I I fucking aced that audition. <laughs> I crushed. What are you talking about? And she was absolutely, she said no. It went to John Fowles' daughter. No, who wrote the novel. Yeah, but I think that was a lie. I think my parents just sort of were quite good at making up strange lies. Okay. Anyway, I I mean, listen, it, it's not um, a child named it, is it? Uh, but it was odd because my sister told me years later and what was fascinating was the collusion so that my mum had told my sister and said, we're not going to give them these parts. There have been quite a few of these parts. She so you down. did get it? Yeah, I got that and a few, and the Swallows and Amazons and a few other things. Oh, wow. But they and she turned them down and my sister said to me when I was in my 30s, she said, oh, we were talking about mum doing that thing, you slagging your parents off. And she said, well, mum can be a bit strange. It's a bit like when you got that part. Who? And I said, what? Wait, what? Um, yeah. But I, I think it was complicated and I was angry at the time. Um, but I realised I think it's it was just a bit strange for her i think maybe it was unsettling i don't know it's but do you think i mean presumably the impulse from her point of view was to keep your life simple mm. she probably thought this is too much too early i don't know i'm trying to well i think so but i suppose what was what complicates it is because we were exposed to quite a lot in terms of the rest of our childhood so I think had she been like your wife, for example, mm. who's created quite a little lovely rural idyll for your family here, and, and I get the sense this is quite an idyllic childhood, but my mum wasn't that. She mm. would stay up late, you know, last one at the party with the champagne glass and the cigarette. She was brilliant fun, mm -hmm. but she would randomly, you know, if you'd say why is granny being horrible to me? She'd say, I've told you because she's on amphetamines, darling. <laughs> so there was a strange, I guess, lack of consistency. We knew everything. There were no secrets from us, you know. So I couldn't, I suppose at the time, I think there was confusion over it. And I I think what it get. I, I don't know her motives and I, I think they probably were benign in some ways. Also, way. I got the sense from your book that maybe she was 
worried for your sister. She was. That uh, your sister would be crushed if you yeah. suddenly zoomed ahead. and. I think so. And I think it's fascinating that I think probably subconsciously parents do that with their kids. I only understood that about the family dynamic and the setup through doing a lot of therapy in this thing, the Hoffman process, which I'll tell you about if you want to know. But I think my mum, definitely, there probably was a sense of wanting to protect. Well, would you get that with, you don't have to talk about your specific children, but as a parent, do you feel the need to protect one child from another's successes? Do you think that is something a parent feels? Yeah, you have to manage and be aware of not overloading one child with too much praise if they happen to be going through a phase of doing particularly well. Right. You know, because you do become aware that the others are kind of tensing up a little and going, oh, God. Oh, really? Always hearing about how brilliant that one is. And, yeah, you, you, it's very difficult. but And it's thankless as well because you know that they will grow up having a totally warped recollection of it anyway they will turn around and call you a wanker yeah because it's fair enough they'll they'll remember that happened already. the bad bits they'll remember the moments that we lost our temper at the, and that we acted in a totally unreasonable way and that we heaped praise mm. on one of the others and failed to recognize something good that they'd done so you can't win i mean in your book i listened to the audio book oh did you and um while I was cycling along, I got to one point, and the book obviously is called Everybody Died, So I Got a Dog. And after the first section, which is sort of setting the scene with your family life and what your ma and pa were like and your relationship with your sister, Rachel, yeah, then your sister got ill mm. and within a few weeks died, mm. aged 43, she was. Yeah. Right. She had... T- Two children? Yeah, she had an 11-month-old and Mimi was 10 and Bertie was 11 months. Oh, no, she just turned one, actually. She turned one just before Rachel died. Mm -hmm. She had liver cancer. Yeah, well, what was interesting? You say interesting. Isn't it funny I use that word? I say interesting. It wasn't interesting. It was a fucking nightmare. Mm. (laughs) But it was, in retrospect... She had colon cancer was the primary, ah, right. but it spread to her liver. But yeah, so she it was co- it was her colon it started and then it and then it had spread. It had metastasized. All these funny words that you don't know, and now it just is part of your vocabulary. Mm. It's like a new language. But she found out it, it was just very sudden. Yes. And so what was difficult was that obviously she had two kids, and that made it so much harder. Um, but she was determined, even though she was really sick, she was determined to have a party for her daughter and I I kept saying to my mother I don't understand why she's doing this when she's sick and she's got to have chemo and and of course my mum's a parent and she's it had hit hadn't occurred to me Adam that my sister knew she wasn't going to have a birthday with her child and I thought oh god as a parent of course that you would want that of course you would I mean you'd want more than one but she hung on for that birthday mm-hmm. and I'm convinced you know there was some sense of her she was determined to have that party and she was ill you know she put on makeup to paste over herself. she was very gaunt and she died a week after that so i wonder if there was a part of her thinking right i'm going to make it to this day Mm. i don't know but it was very swift and it was hideous and all the shocking horrifying stuff that comes with 
you understand about bereavement. You've gone through it yourself. But yeah, you were but telling was... me about cycling and what happened. You said you heard that. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, that my experience was, was totally different from yours for all right. sorts of reasons. And you write about it very well, the whole process. And I would certainly recommend it to anyone who's been through that or is going through that. And there were a lot of interesting and comforting and sometimes funny insights. But also the bit that made me on my bike go oh man Mm. was when you were talking about your dad and he was in the room and his response after Rachel died Mm. yeah it was quite heavy he basically said to me Rachel died and it was hideous obviously because my sister died and I was just sort of reeling from the shock of it It was me my brother-in-law my mother and my dad she was a nice sister you liked her she was sort of incredible yeah she was because we moved around the world a lot and we were we were kind of like pets in a way mm-hmm. with my parents. Like, you know, when Victorians had menageries, you know, we would sort of be brought up. We were like parakeets or something. We were like... But my sister was... She was... I don't know what your relationship with your sibling was like, but my sister was that person that... We had that shorthand. You know, we used to call each other C mm-hmm. for the, the, the offensive The, the Jeremy Hunt word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... There was just an intimacy there and a shared language that a lot of siblings have. Some siblings I'm discovering, I assumed everyone was like that, but they're not. Some siblings are the sort of, how are you going, mate? You know, they don't, they rarely speak. They see each other at Christmas and birthdays. Uh, yeah, I wish I saw, I don't see enough of my really? brother and sister, yeah. Because I, that's interesting to me, that, because I just, with my sister and I, I think we spoke probably twice a day. Right, okay. So... It was very, it was intense, you know, and I did feel, yeah, I felt devastated when she'd gone. And when she died, my dad said, the best one has gone. In the hospital In the intensive care, yeah. And that was really tough. But he was in the throes of grief himself. He was also in early stages of Alzheimer's. Yes, he was. I mean, that is not something you want to hear. When your no. sister's just died. Oh, let's see who it is. Is that your wife? It's my wife. Let's see what she says. Hello. <laughs> what time is it now? Half eight. Half eight. Shall we sit down at nine? Yeah, great. Okay, see you in a bit. Bye. Is that our dinner? That's our dinner. Has your wife made our dinner? I should certainly hope so. <laughs> We're having duck. Breast, by the way. If anyone's um, offended by that, I, I don't know what to say at this point. Um, they, the ducks were all fine with it. They, they all reached the end of some, <laughs> their happy lives and that was their last... They weren't like humanised ducks. They weren't like Donald Duck with the uh, no. Valero waistcoat. It was their last request <laughs> that they should be consumed after a great, great podcast. But listen... Oh, now we've got to do that this morning. Duh. So, we'll be talking about uh, Emily's dead father. Yeah. um, So, Emily, before the break, (laughs) you were saying that um, you were absolutely crushed to the very core, not only by the death of your sister, but by something your father said. Remind us again what that was. But coming up, recipes for duck breasts. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean... Yeah, no, no, it was hideous, Adam, but I think it's taken me a long time to process it and to forgive him. And for me, that was something that only happened through therapy, I guess. But did that um, 
at the that time must it have was just, devastating. Yeah, yeah, because it's very, very hard to get that sort of thing in perspective, especially when you're in the throes of grief yourself. Of course. And it's really going to just go round and round and round on a loop. Yeah, it did. And it confirmed everything I sort of believed about myself. It was kind... You know what it felt like? I don't know if you've ever... Someone's ever put the phone down on you. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this particularly used to happen more in the olden days of voicemails. But someone's put the phone down and not put it down properly. So you've heard some of their conversation you kind of fantasise about that happening. You know, we all slightly fantasise about overhearing friends talking about us. We want to know what people would say. It's what we were desperate to know, but we fear it as well. And I suppose it felt like that. It felt like I'd listened in to people talking about me and it taught me that it's not something you should ever do. And so that I really struggled a lot with that. But my way of dealing with it back then, because it was my way of dealing with everything, was just to don this armour and be very brittle and be very sort of Madonna, screw you. So you had like an eye patch with an X on it. (laughs) I sung really out of key. No, but I did. I think I just thought that was the only way to deal with it because I didn't know any other way. I, I didn't know that you could just be vulnerable and just say, oh, I'm I'm really upset because I my dad said this thing. I thought you had to say, oh, my dad's like crap dad. Oh, my dad's just not that into me. That's I mean, that I is think. a way of dealing with it. It's, does, it's not dealing with it. I don't believe. Because you're I, sort of deferring the, the pain and... I mean, I think logically you, you don't like your handy about the house. You know that if you were to keep painting over a door, eventually they, they, that paint would crack you would have to actually strip it all down. That's honestly what I believe, to, to, to do it Not properly. If, it, if it's been properly primed. <laughs> Get technical with me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I sort of think that's dangerous, I think, building up layers. And I know people that do that, and that's their coping mechanism. We all know people that do that, I, you know. But I, I just, I've never really met anyone who said, I really regret all those years I had in therapy. But it is hard, you know. And when I did this Hoffman process where you weren't allowed to speak for long periods of time and you had to hand in your laptop and your mobile phone, in that you tell your story and no one... That's, I believe, one of the principles of rehab, isn't it? People don't interrupt. So there's something about owning your sort of experience. So you'll tell your story or you'll say whatever your issue is. And you know you're used to friends saying, I would talk about grief and I'd say, oh, my sister died. Oh, my God, that's awful. And how... And there was something really odd about just no one interrupting me, no one saying anything. It almost hit me that it was bad because prior to that, I hadn't had to acknowledge that because you've got the distraction of other people's responses and there is something to be had from it, which I suppose is the the meagre consolation prize for her loss. And I'm not saying my parents' loss wasn't a loss, but that was, I expected that. This is a life interrupted, which is different. I think that you're fundamentally changed, we're all changed. My nieces are changed, my brother-in-law's changed, I'm changed, we're all changed. And there's empathy and there's... I think I'm probably a slightly nicer person, <laughs> which isn't very helpful to her. But if that's... If the consolation you get from grief is that 
that person becomes part of you. I don't believe in an afterlife, unfortunately. I don't believe in that. But I do believe you absorb that person's love. I think love has to go somewhere. And you absorb some of them. Well, if my sister was the best one, then I'm the best one as well now. Because she's in me. That sounds really naff. I'm sorry, Ads. It's probably a bit too much for you, but... I'm not going to be able to play the upbeat music. <laughs> over the end of that. You're going to have to get the R tune music. But that might help someone. Who's gone through loss? Is it too heavy for you this week? I'm worried it's a bit heavy. They'll be daft. No, not at all. Not so what do we do now? How do we end the podcast? test a person is whether I could leave my mobile phone in the room open as in password open yeah and feel comfortable and I could do that with you I couldn't do that with everyone really what kind of people are you hanging around with really what who's gonna look at someone else's phone without their permission I know people that would do that do you not know anyone who would do that I mean, I maybe someone would pick it up and look at the time or check the weather or something. No, they would look at your messages. No. What the shit? No one does that. Only mad people do that. And I mean that in a non-pejorative... Do you think Boris Johnson would do it? Very probably. <laughs> and, no one, and no one would be able to complain about it. He'd just go, oh, everyone does it, something funny. I just found this on my phone because I was... What have you found? I was with your daughter, who I absolutely love. She's charming, isn't she? So do I. I know, but you're meant to. You're supposed to. supposed to. No, she's nice. She's really charming. I like her a lot. And we were having fun playing with my dog, Ray, and I just found this, and she and your wife were falling about. Because I'd taken... I I don't know why I had this, but I think I'd, I'd been showing it to someone earlier, so I've got a screen grab of it. And it's a story I wrote when I was younger. How old? I guess I was about eight or something. Oh. Eight or nine. It was called, Why Did It Have to Be Me? At the top, it says, When This Has Finished, PTO. I did it right at the top. I'm going to show Adam here. Oh, yeah. Nice writing. I had always lived alone since I was nine months old. My mother had died because of a heart attack. But to make matters worse, Flora had moved to this village. My father was a drag queen who didn't like children. (laughs) So another nice family adopted me. There was Susan, who was quite a bore, because all she did was read books. And there was Jennifer, who was 20 and a (laughs) lifesaver. You're eight. When I read this to your wife, she said it sounded like one of David Williams' books. (laughs) Because his characters tend to be like this. And Penny... He was very pretty and kind. But last of all, there was Tom, who was very handsome. My trouble was that I could not help falling in love with him. Flora loved him too, but Flora had blonde hair, so he probably loved her better. I have short brown hair. It continues, 
PTO. The last line I found was, I froze to death. (laughs) And it's called, Why Did It Happen to Me? F-R-O-S-E. I froze to death. It was called, Why Did It Have to Be Me? Why Did It Have to Be Me? So... Self-pity lit. Very self-pitying. And um, and a liar and a and level you, of exaggeration. I mean, living alone at nine months old. Oh, but a, it was supposed to be fiction or was it designed to be? I think it was supposed to be fiction, but I, in the same way that I don't believe there's anything. You know, when people say, I was joking. Right, right, right. Obviously, we, we both know that humour is a disguise for what we really want to say. So sure. I think with that, my father was a drag queen who didn't like children. I, I think that's fascinating looking at that. Yeah. Because you can probably work out I was angry. I wanted to be adopted. I wanted my whole family to be killed off. You wanted to live in Madame Jojo's. Yes. And then I was complaining about the blonde, perfect girl that everyone else loved, you see. Whoa, that's quite an insight. What did you write? Did you have anything like that? Yeah, I found something that I wrote the other day, but I was a bit older. So oh, Adam's got a book in front of him. He's got a little book. It's a memo book. And, oh, it is the very first day of 1977. I am seven years old and have a brother and a sister, oh. it says on the first page. Then it's story time. Here is my story and I will pronounce <laughs> the words as they are written and spelled. Onek upon a time, there was a little boy called Jerry. He lived with his mother and his father. They were very poor and they had nothing to eat. And then I use what I believe is the world's first emoji. emoji. Adam, you put an emoji in Yeah, I put an emoji in there. I mean, it's a crude, primitive emoji. Unhappy emoji. Then there's a picture of a guy trying to reach the cupboard, which I would do. The table I'm trying to wrestle with perspective and foreshortening, (laughs) but it's I'm losing the wrestle. The table looks like a sort of uh, a hopper, which is at a Jewish wedding. That's what it looks Uh like. Yeah, go on. Chapter two. (laughs) One day, Jerry was walking. And then he saw a egg. Saw <laughs> It's a bit like Chaucer. S-A-W-E. <laughs> when that April with his shower suit. <laughs> he saw a egg. <laughs> to then he pick it up and he took it home. When he woke up, he went to see his egg. Egg. It was hatched. H-A-C-H-T. <laughs> and there in the egg was the funniest thing you ever saw. Oh, I mean, this is quite a stark contrast to <laughs> your piece. My father was a drag queen who never really liked children very much. That's the thing. Mine was a bit Toast of London, wasn't it? Chapter three. <laughs> when Terry, he's no longer Jerry. Has he changed his name in the no, middle? No, I've just forgotten how to write a J. So now it's Can facing the other Can I say one thing that I'm already struck by? Yeah. You, I've noticed you said they were very poor. Well, it's like Dickens, isn't it? Um, no. I think it is. <laughs> when Terry saw <laughs> the fig... It's so... What's the thing? 
fig. The fig inside the egg. You know. There's a fig. There's a fig. I missed out the end from thing. <laughs> I thought you meant a fig. No. As a, okay. A fig. Yeah. When, Je- when Terry <laughs> saw the fig, it's a hoop. And there was a little label around his neck. This is what it said. My name is Namion. Illustration of an alien. And that's where it ends. <laughs> that's certainly a cliffhanger. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcasts. Thank you very much indeed to Emily Dean and Raymond there. I think myself and Raymond got on very well. We both are small with uh, round, hairy faces. And I don't know, probably mentally we're fairly similar as well, I should think. Anyway, I was very grateful to them both for their company and their time and for travelling all the way to Norfolk to be on the podcast. I've included a few links to Emily's book and other bits and pieces that we talked about in the description of this podcast. Right, now I mentioned in my intro that uh, I have exciting news about next week's podcast guest. What's happening next week, I think, is that I'm going to fit in two extra episodes into this run because I got the opportunity to talk to comedian, writer and director Chris Morris of On The Hour, Brass Eye, Four Lions and now his second feature film, The Day Shall Come which was released in the UK today as I speak, October the 11th, 2019 The film was written by Chris along with the brilliant Jesse Armstrong whose writing credits also include Four Lions and... Of course, Peep Show, which he wrote with Sam Bain, Black Mirror, and his hugely successful HBO series, Succession. The Day Shall Come extends some of the themes that Chris Morris explored in Four Lions, but this time focuses on the way that the spectre of domestic terrorism is handled by U.S. authorities. Anna Kendrick 
plays an FBI agent who gets involved with what amounts to a sting operation on an impoverished and deluded Miami preacher played by Marchant Davis, who needs cash to save his family from eviction. Amongst the film's excellent and very funny cast is Four Lions alumnus Kayvan Novak, he of Phone Jacker fame, and like Four Lions, The Day Shall Come is funny, strange, thought-provoking, and unexpectedly moving. Although I've told you it's moving now, so it's not going to be so unexpected. Anyway, as well as talking with Chris about The Day Shall Come and the many real and strange incidents that inspired it, we talked about lots of other random bits and pieces too. It's not a comprehensive career overview, but it is a meandering conversation with someone whose work I've admired for a very long time. The plan is to put out two episodes with Chris next week. The first one on Monday, and the second one, which is made up of a backup recording from... Uh, the first session that we did, which didn't record properly. So basically what happened was I sat down and recorded with Chris a few weeks back and at the end of the session I realised that none of it had recorded on the proper recorder. And I just thought, oh, bollocks. But I did have a backup recording uh, which was usable, but it just felt like, oh... He doesn't do many podcasts, and it would be good to just do it properly. So Chris was nice enough to sit down with me again and do another session where we talked about some different bits and pieces and covered some of the same ground about the film. Uh, but then, And so that's what's going to go out on Monday. But then when I listened to the backup, there were still quite a few other bits and pieces that... Uh, sounded fine or at least were you know good enough to listen to and certainly I thought would be uh, entertaining for fans of his so I'll put that out sometime next week either Tuesday or I'm not sure it depends when I'm able to get it edited but Matt Lamont has been editing the uh, other conversation recorded on the nice mics and that one is going out on Monday so there you go. But in the meantime, go and see The Day Shall Come. And then listen to Chris talking about it and much else on the podcast next week. Right. Rosie, come on, let's go back. It is time for tea time. Rosie. Where's she gone? Ah, uh, I'm going to start walking back. Hope she emerges. Oh, she's... Is that her? Who is that? Is that you? I can't see anything without my glasses. I don't have my glasses with me because I was reading my notes off my phone. Oh, that is Rosie. It's not a deer. Thanks very much indeed to Matt Lamont for his edit whiz bottery on the episode you have just heard. Thanks as well to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Seamus. Thanks once again to Emily Dean and to Raymond. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Right the way to the end. I know that some people like to listen to the podcast as an aid to sleep. 
they find it uh, soothing slash boring and put it on in order to drift off if they're experiencing problem sleeping. The only trouble is, of course, at the end of my outro, I shout and then there's music. So uh, presumably that just wakes people up. Anyway, back next week with Chris Morris. Until then, please take very good care. I love you. Bye! Oh, sorry to wake you.